Introduction, Section 14 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 14. The Possibility of Mythi in the New Testament Considered on Internal Grounds. Seeing, from what has already been said, that the external testimony respecting the composition of our Gospels far from forcing upon us the conclusion that they proceeded from eyewitnesses or well-informed contemporaries leaves the decision to be determined wholly by internal grounds of evidence that is by the nature of the gospel narratives themselves we might immediately proceed from this introduction to the peculiar object of the present work which is an examination of those narratives in detail it may however appear useful before entering upon this special inquiry to consider the general question how far it is consistent with the character of the christian religion that mythi should be found in it and how far the general construction of the gospel narratives authorizes us to treat them as mythi although indeed if the following critical examination of the details be successful in proving the actual existence of mythi in the new testament this preliminary demonstration of their possibility becomes superfluous if with this view we compare the acknowledged mythical religions of antiquity with the hebrew and christian it is true that we are struck by many differences between the sacred histories existing in these religious forms and in those of the former above all it is commonly alleged that the sacred histories of the bible are distinguished from the legends of the indians greeks romans etc by their moral character and excellence Quote, in the latter the stories of the battles of the gods the loves of krishna jupiter etc contain much which was offensive to the moral feeling even of enlightened heathens and which is revolting to ours whilst in the former the whole course of the narration offers only what is worthy of god instructive and ennobling to this it may be answered with regard to the heathens that the appearance of immorality in many of their narratives is merely the consequence of a subsequent misconception of their original meaning and with regard to the old testament that the perfect moral purity of its history has been contested often indeed it has been contested without good grounds because a due distinction is not made between that which is ascribed to individual men who as they are represented are by no means spotless examples of purity and that which is ascribed to god nevertheless it is true that we have commands called divine which like that to the israelites on their departure out of egypt to purloin vessels of gold are scarcely less revolting to an enlightened moral feeling than the thefts of the grecian hermes but even admitting this difference in the morality of the religions to its full extent and it must be admitted at least with regard to the new testament still it furnishes no proof of the historical character of the bible for though every story relating to god which is immoral is necessarily fictitious even the most moral is not necessarily true Quote, but that which is incredible and inconceivable forms the staple of the heathen fables whilst in the biblical history if we only presuppose the immediate intervention of the deity there is nothing of the kind Close quote. 
Exactly, if this be presupposed. Otherwise, we might very likely find the miracles in the life of Moses, Elias, or Jesus, the theophany and angelophany of the Old and New Testament, just as incredible as the fables of Jupiter, Hercules, or Bacchus. Presuppose the divinity or divine descent of these individuals, and their actions and fate become as credible as those of the biblical personages with the like presupposition. Yet not quite so, it may be returned. Vishnu, appearing in his three first avatars as a fish, a tortoise, and a boar, Saturn devouring his children, Jupiter turning himself into a bull, a swan, etc., these are incredibilities of quite another kind from Jehovah appearing to Abraham in a human form under the terebinth tree, or to Moses in the burning bush. This extravagant love of the marvelous is the character of the heathen mythology. A similar accusation might indeed be brought against many parts of the Bible, such as the tales of Balaam, Joshua, and Samson. But still it is here less glaring, and does not form, as in the Indian religion, and in certain parts of the Grecian, the prevailing character. What, however, does this prove? Only that the biblical history might be true, sooner than the Indian or Grecian fables, not in the least that on this account it must be true, and can contain nothing fictitious. Quote, but the subjects of the heathen mythology are for the most part such, as to convince us beforehand that they are mere inventions, those of the Bible such as at once to establish their own reality. A Brahma, an Ormust, a Jupiter, without doubt never existed. But there still is a God, a Christ, and there have been an Adam, a Noah, an Abraham, a Moses. Whether an Adam or a Noah, however, were such as they were represented, has already been doubted, and may still be doubted. Just so, on the other side, there may have been something historical about Hercules, Theseus, Achilles, and other heroes of Grecian story. Here again, we come to the decision that the biblical history might be true sooner than the heathen mythology, but is not necessarily so. This decision, however, together with the two distinctions already made, brings us to an important observation. How do the Grecian divinities approve themselves immediately to us as non-existing beings, if not because things are ascribed to them which we cannot reconcile with our idea of the divine? Whilst the God of the Bible is a reality to us just in so far as he corresponds with the idea we have formed of him in our own minds, Besides the contradiction to our notion of the divine involved in the plurality of heathen gods, and the intimate description of their motives and actions, we are at once revolted to find that the gods themselves have a history, that they are born, grow up, marry, have children, work out their purposes, suffer difficulties and weariness, conquer and are conquered. It is irreconcilable with our idea of the absolute to suppose it subjected to time and change, to opposition and suffering. And therefore, where we meet a narrative in which these are attributed to a divine being, by this test we recognize it as unhistorical or mythical. It is in this sense that the Bible, and even the Old Testament, 
is said to contain no mythi. The story of the creation, with its succession of each day's labor ending in a rest after the completion of the task, the expression often recurring in the farther course of the narrative, God repenting of having done so and so, these and similar representations cannot indeed be entirely vindicated from the charge of making finite the nature of the deity and this is the ground which has been taken by mythical interpreters of the history of the creation and in every other instance where god is said to reveal himself exclusively at any definite place or time by celestial apparition or by miracle wrought immediately by himself it is to be presumed that the deity has become finite and descended to human modes of operation it may however be said in general that in the old testament the divine nature does not appear to be essentially affected by the temporal character of its operation but that the temporal shows itself rather as a mere form an unavoidable appearance arising out of the necessary limitation of human and especially of uncultivated powers of representation it is obvious to every one that there is something quite different in the old testament declarations that god made an alliance with noah and abraham led his people out of egypt gave them laws brought them into the promised land raised up for them judges kings and prophets and punished them at last for their disobedience by exile and from the tales concerning jupiter that he was born of rhea in crete and hidden from his father saturn in a cave that afterwards he made war upon his father freed the uranides and with their help and that of the lightning with which they furnished him overcame the rebellious titans and at last divided the world amongst his brothers and children the essential difference between the two representations is that in the latter the deity himself is the subject of progression becomes another being at the end of the process from what he was at the beginning something being affected in himself and for his own sake whilst in the former change takes place only on the side of the world god remains fixed in his own identity as the i am and the temporal is only a superficial reflection cast back upon his acting energy by that course of mundane events which he both originated and guides in the heathen mythology the gods have a history in the old testament god himself has none but only his people and if the proper meaning of mythology be the history of gods then the hebrew religion has no mythology from the hebrew religion this recognition of the divine unity and immutability was transmitted to the christian the birth growth miracles sufferings death and resurrection of christ are circumstances belonging to the destiny of the messiah above which god remains unaffected in his own changeless identity the new testament therefore knows nothing of mythology in the above sense the state of the question is however somewhat changed from that which it assumed in the old testament for jesus is called the son of god not merely in the same sense as kings under the theocracy were so called but as actually begotten by the divine spirit or from the incarnation in his person of the divine logos inasmuch as he is one with the father and in him the whole fullness of the godhead dwells bodily he is more than moses 
the actions and sufferings of such a being are not external to the deity though we are not allowed to suppose a theopashitic union with the divine nature yet still even in the new testament and more in the later doctrine of the church it is a divine being that here lives and suffers and what befalls him has an absolute worth and significance thus according to the above accepted notion of the mythos the new testament has more of a mythical character than the old but to call the history of jesus mythical in this sense is as unimportant with regard to the historical question as it is unexceptionable for the idea of god is in no way opposed to such an intervention in human affairs as does not affect his own immutability so that as far as regards this point the gospel history notwithstanding its mythical designation might be at the same time throughout historically true admitting that the biblical history does not equally with the heathen mythology offend our idea of deity and that consequently it is not in the like manner characterized by this mark of the unhistorical however far it be from bearing any guarantee of it being historical we are met by a further question whether it be not less accordant with our idea of the world and whether such discordancy may not furnish a test of its unhistorical nature in the ancient world that is in the east the religious tendency was so preponderating and the knowledge of nature so limited that the law of connection between earthly finite beings was very loosely regarded at every link there was a disposition to spring into the infinite and to see god as the immediate cause of every change in nature or the human mind in this mental condition the biblical history was written not that god is here represented as doing all and everything himself a notion which from the manifold direct evidence of the fundamental connection between finite things would be impossible to any reasonable mind but there prevails in the biblical writers a ready disposition to derive all things down to the minutest details as soon as they appear particularly important immediately from god he it is who gives the rain and sunshine he sends the east wind and the storm he dispenses war famine pestilence he hardens hearts and softens them suggests thoughts and resolutions and this is particularly the case with regard to his chosen instruments and beloved people in the history of the israelites we find traces of his immediate agency at every step through moses elias jesus he performs things which never would have happened in the ordinary course of nature in our modern world on the contrary after many centuries of tedious research has attained a conviction that all things are linked together by a chain of causes and effects which suffers no interruption it is true that single facts and groups of facts with their conditions and processes of change are not so circumscribed as to be unsusceptible of external influence for the action of one existence or kingdom in nature entrenches on that of another human freedom controls natural development and material laws react on human freedom nevertheless the totality of finite things forms a vast circle which except that it owes its existence and laws to a superior power suffers no intrusion from without this conviction is so much a habit of thought with the modern world 
that in actual life the belief in a supernatural manifestation in immediate divine agency is at once attributed to ignorance or imposture it has been carried to the extreme in that modern explanation which in a spirit exactly opposed to that of the bible has either totally removed the divine causation or has so far restricted it that it is immediate in the act of creation alone but mediate from that point onwards that is god operates on the world only in so far as he gave to it this fixed direction at the creation from this point of view at which nature and history appear as a compact tissue of finite causes and effects it was impossible to regard the narratives of the bible in which this tissue is broken by innumerable instances of divine interference as historical it must be confessed on nearer investigation that this modern explanation although it does not exactly deny the existence of god yet puts aside the idea of him as the ancient view did the idea of the world for this is as it has been often and well remarked no longer a god and creator but a mere finite artist who acts immediately upon his work only during its first production and then leaves it to itself who becomes excluded with his full energy from one particular sphere of existence it has therefore been attempted to unite the two views so as to maintain for the world its law of sequence and for god his unlimited action and by this means to preserve the truth of the biblical history according to this view the world is supposed to move in obedience to the law of consecutive causes and effects bound up with its constitution and god to act upon it only immediately but in single instances where he finds it necessary for particular objects he is not held to be restricted from entering into the course of human changes immediately this is the view of modern supernaturalism evidently a vain attempt to reconcile two opposite views since it contains the faults of both and adds a new one in the contradiction between the two ill-assorted principles for here the consecutiveness of nature and history is broken through as in the ancient biblical view and the action of god limited as in the contrary system the proposition that god works sometimes immediately sometimes immediately upon the world introduces a changeableness and therefore a temporal element into the nature of his action which brings it under the same condemnation as both the other systems that namely of distinguishing the maintaining power in the one case from individual instances of the divine agency and in the other from the act of creation footnote if the supernatural view contains a theological contradiction so the new evangelical theology which esteems itself raised so far above the old supernatural view contains a logical contradiction to say that god acts only immediately upon the world as the general rule but sometimes by way of exception immediately has some meaning though perhaps not a wise one but to say that god acts always immediately on the world but in some cases more particularly immediately is a flat contradiction in itself on the principle of the eminence or immediate agency of god in the world to which the new evangelical theology lays claim the idea of the miraculous is impossible End footnote. since then our idea of god requires an immediate 
and our idea of the world a mediate divine operation, and since the idea of combination of the two species of action is inadmissible, nothing remains for us but to regard them both as so permanently and immovably united that the operation of God on the world continues forever and everywhere twofold, both immediate and mediate, which comes just to this, that it is neither of the two, or this distinction loses its value. To explain more closely, if we proceed from the idea of God, from which arose the demand for his immediate operation, then the world is to be regarded in relation to him as a whole. On the contrary, if we proceed from the idea of the finite, the world is a congeries of separate parts, and hence has arisen the demand for a merely mediate agency of God, so that we must say, God acts upon the world as a whole immediately, but on each part only by means of his action on every other part, that is to say, by the laws of nature. This view brings us to the same conclusion with regard to the historical value of the Bible as the one considered above. The miracles which God wrought for and by Moses and Jesus do not proceed from his immediate operation on the whole, but presuppose an immediate action in particular cases, which is a contradiction to the type of the divine agency we have just given. The supernaturalists, indeed, claim an exception from this type on behalf of the biblical history, a presupposition which is inadmissible from our point of view, according to which the same laws, although varied by various circumstances, are supreme in every sphere of being and action, and therefore every narrative which offends against these laws is to be recognized as so far unhistorical. Footnote. To a freedom from this presupposition, we lay claim in the following work, in the same sense as a state might be called free from presupposition, where the privileges of station, etc., were of no account. Such a state, indeed, has one presupposition, that of the natural equality of its citizens, and similarly do we take for granted the equal amenability to law of all events. But this is merely an affirmative form of expression for our former negation. But to claim for the biblical history especial laws of its own is an affirmative proposition, which, according to the established rule, is that which requires proof, and not our denial of it, which is merely negative. And if the proof cannot be given or be found insufficient, it is the former and not the latter which is to be considered a presupposition. End footnote. The result, then, however surprising, of a general examination of the biblical history is that the Hebrew and Christian religions, like all others, have their mythi. And this result is confirmed if we consider the inherent nature of religion, what essentially belongs to it and therefore must be common to all religions, and what, on the other hand, is peculiar and may differ in each. If religion be defined as the perception of truth, not in the form of an idea, which is the philosophic perception, but invested with imagery, it is easy to see that the mythical element can be wanting only when religion either falls short of or goes beyond its peculiar province, and that in the proper religious sphere it must necessarily exist. It is only amongst the lowest and most barbarous people, such as the Eskimo, 
that we find religion not yet fashioned into an objective form but still confined to a subjective feeling they know nothing of gods or of superior spirits and powers and their whole piety consists in an undefined sentiment excited by the hurricane the eclipse or the magician as it progresses however the religious principle loses more and more of this indefiniteness and ceasing to be subjective it becomes objective in the sun moon mountains animals and other objects of the sensible world higher powers are discovered and revered and in proportion as their significance given to these objects is remote from their actual nature a new world of mere imagination is created a sphere of divine existences whose relations to one another actions and influences can be represented only after human analogy and therefore as temporal and historical even when the mind has raised itself to the conception of the divine unity still the energy and activity of god are considered only under the form of a series of acts and on the other hand natural events and human actions can be raised to a religious significance only by the admission of divine interpositions and miracles it is only from the philosophic point of view that the world of imagination is seen again to coincide with the actual because the thought of god is comprehended to be his essence and in the regular course itself of nature and of history the revelation of the divine idea is acknowledged it is certainly difficult to conceive how narratives which thus speak of imagination as reality can have been formed without intentional deceit and believed without unexampled credulity and this difficulty has been held an invincible objection to the mythical interpretation of many of the narratives of the old and new testament if this were the case it would apply equally to the heathen legends and on the other hand if profane mythology have steered clear of the difficulty neither will that of the bible founder upon it i shall here quote at length the words of an experienced inquirer into grecian mythology and primitive history Ottfried muller since it is evident that this preliminary knowledge of the subject which must be derived from general mythology and which is necessary for the understanding of the following examination of the evangelic mythos is not yet familiar to all theologians says muller how shall we reconcile this combination of the true and the false the real and ideal in mythi with the fact that they are being believed and received as truth the ideal it may be said is nothing else than poetry and fiction clothed in the form of a narration but a fiction of this kind cannot be invented at the same time by many different persons without a miracle requiring as it does a peculiar coincidence of intention imagination and expression it is therefore the work of one person but how did he convince all the others that his fiction had an actual truth shall we suppose him to have been one who contrived to delude by all kinds of trickery and deception and perhaps allied himself with similar deceivers whose part it was to afford attestation to the people of his inventions as having been witnessed by themselves or shall we think of him as a man of higher endowments than others who believed him upon his word and received the mythical tales under whose veil he sought to impart wholesome truths as a sacred revelation 
but it is impossible to prove that such a caste of deceivers existed in ancient Greece or Palestine. On the contrary, this skillful system of deception, be it gross or refined, selfish or philanthropic, if we are not misled by the impression we have received from the earliest productions of the Grecian or Christian mind, is little suited to the noble simplicity of those times. Hence, an inventor of the mythos in the proper sense of the word is inconceivable. This reasoning brings us to the conclusion that the idea of a deliberate and intentional fabrication in which the author clothes that which he knows to be false in the appearance of truth must be entirely set aside as insufficient to account for the origin of the mythos or in other words that there is a certain necessity in this connection between the ideal and the real which constitutes the mythos that the mythical images were formed by the influence of sentiments common to all mankind and that the different elements grew together without the author's being himself conscious of their incongruity. It is this notion of a certain necessity and unconsciousness in the formation of the ancient mythi on which we insist. If this be once understood, it will also be perceived that the contention whether the mythos proceed from one person or many, from the poet or the people, though it may be started on other grounds, does not go to the root of the matter. For if the one who invents the mythos is only obeying the impulse which acts also upon the minds of his hearers, he is but the mouth through which all speak, the skilful interpreter, who has the address first to give form and expression to the thoughts of all. It is, however, very possible that this notion of necessity and unconsciousness might appear itself obscure and mystical to our antiquarians and theologians, from no other reason than that this mythicizing tendency has no analogy in the present mode of thinking. But is not history to acknowledge even what is strange, when led to it by unprejudiced research? As an example to show that even very complicated mythi, in the formation of which many apparently remote circumstances must have combined, may yet have arisen in this unconscious manner, Mueller then refers to the Grecian mythos of Apollo and Marsyas. Quote, it was customary to celebrate the festivals of Apollo with playing on the lyre, and it was necessary to piety that the god himself should be regarded as its author. In Phrygia, on the contrary, the national music was the flute, which was similarly derived from a demon of their own named Marsyas the ancient Grecians perceived that the tones of these two instruments were essentially opposed. The harsh, shrill piping of the flute must be hateful to Apollo, and therefore Marcius his enemy. This was not enough. In order that the lyre-playing Grecian might flatter himself that the invention of his god was the more excellent instrument, Apollo must triumph over Marcius. But why was it necessary in particular that the unlucky Phrygian should be flayed. Here is the simple origin of the mythos. Near the castle of Celioni in Phrygia, in a cavern whence flowed a stream or torrent named Marsyas, was suspended a skin flask, called by the Phrygians the bottle of Marsyas. For Marsyas was, like the Grecian Silenus, a demigod symbolizing the exuberance of the juices of nature. 
now where a grecian or a phrygian with grecian prepossessions looked on the bottle he plainly saw the catastrophe of marzias here was still suspended his skin which had been torn off and made into a bottle apollo had flayed him in all this there is no arbitrary invention the same ideas might have occurred to many and if one first gave expression to them he knew well that his auditors imbued with the same prepossessions would not for an instant doubt his accuracy the chief reason of the complicated character of mythi in general is their having been formed for the most part not at once but successively and by degrees under the influence of very different circumstances and events both external and internal the popular traditions being orally transmitted and not restricted by any written document were open to receive every new addition and thus grew in the course of long centuries to the form in which we now find them how far this applies to a great part of the new testament mythi will be shown hereafter this is an important and luminous fact which however is very frequently overlooked in the explanation of mythi for they are regarded as allegories invented by one person at one stroke with the definite purpose of investing a thought in the form of a narration Close quote. the view thus expressed by muller that the mythos is founded not upon any individual conception but upon the more elevated and general conception of a whole people or religious community is said by a competent judge of muller's work to be the necessary condition for a right understanding of the ancient mythos the admission or rejection of which henceforth ranges the opinions on mythology into two opposite divisions it is not however easy to draw a line of distinction between intentional and unintentional fiction in the case where a fact lay at the foundation which being the subject of popular conversation and admiration in the course of time formed itself into a mythos we readily dismiss all notion of wilful fraud at least in its origin for a mythos of this kind is not the work of one man but of a whole body of men and of succeeding generations the narrative passing from mouth to mouth and like a snowball growing by the involuntary addition of one exaggerating feature from this and another from that narrator in time however these legends are sure to fall into the way of some gifted minds which will be stimulated by them into the exercise of their own poetical religious or didactic powers most of the mythical narratives which have come down to us from antiquity such as the trojan and the mosaic series of legends are presented to us in this elaborated form here then it would appear there must have been intentional deception this however is only the result of an erroneous assumption it is almost impossible in a critical and enlightened age like our own to carry ourselves back to a period of civilization in which the imagination worked so powerfully that its illusions were believed as realities by the very minds that created them yet the very same miracles which are wrought in less civilized circles by the imagination are produced in the more cultivated by the understanding let us take one of the best didactic historians of ancient or modern times livy as an example he says quote, numa gave to the romans a number of religious ceremonies 
ne luxuria rentur otio animi, and because he regarded religion as the best means of bridling multitudinem imperitam et ilis seculis rudem. He continues, quote, Idem nefastos dies fastosque fecit, quia aliquando nihil cum populo agi utile futurem erat. How did Livy know that these were the motives of Numa? In point of fact, they certainly were not, but Livy believed them to be so. The inference of his own understanding appeared to him so necessary that he treated it with full conviction as an actual fact. The popular legend, or some ancient poet, had explained this fertility of religious invention in Numa otherwise, namely, that it arose from his communication with the nymph Egeria, who revealed to him the forms of worship that would be most acceptable to the gods. It is obvious that the case is pretty nearly the same with regard to both representations. If the latter had an individual author, it was his opinion that the historical statement could be accounted for only upon the supposition of a communication with a superior being, as it was that of Livy, that its explanation must lie in political views. The one mistook the production of his imagination, the other the inference of his understanding for reality. Perhaps it may be admitted that there is a possibility of unconscious fiction, even when an individual author is assigned to it, provided that the mythical consists only in the filling up and adorning some historical event with imaginary circumstances, but that where the whole story is invented and not any historical nucleus is to be found, this unconscious fiction is impossible. Whatever view may be taken of the heathen mythology, it is easy to show, with regard to the New Testament, that there was the greatest antecedent probability of this very kind of fiction having arisen respecting Jesus without any fraudulent intention. The expectation of a Messiah had grown up amongst the Israelitish people long before the time of Jesus, and just then had ripened to full maturity. And from its beginning, this expectation was not indefinite, but determined, and characterized by many important particulars. Moses was said to have promised his people a prophet like unto himself, from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. And this passage was, in the time of Jesus, applied to the Messiah, from Acts chapter 3, verse 22, and chapter 7, verse 37. Hence, the rabbinical principle, as the first redeemer, so shall be the second, which principle was carried out into many particulars to be expected in the Messiah after his prototype, Moses. Again, the Messiah was to come of the race of David, and as the second David, take possession of his throne. From Matthew chapter 22, verse 42, Luke chapter 1, verse 32, and Acts chapter 2, verse 30. And therefore, in the time of Jesus, it was expected that he, like David, should be born in the little village of Bethlehem. From John chapter 7, verse 42, and Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, and following. In the above passage, Moses describes the supposed Messiah as a prophet. So, in his own idea, Jesus was the greatest and last of the prophetic race. But in the old national legends, the prophets were made illustrious by the most wonderful actions and destiny. How could less be expected of the Messiah? 
was it not necessary beforehand that his life should be adorned with that which was most glorious and important in the lives of the prophets must not the popular expectation give him a share in the bright portion of their history as subsequently the sufferings of himself and his disciples were attributed by jesus when he appeared as the messiah to a participation in the dark side of the fate of the prophets from matthew chapter twenty three verse twenty nine and following luke chapter thirteen verse thirty three and following compare matthew chapter five verse twelve believing that moses and all the prophets had prophesied of the messiah from john chapter five verse forty six luke chapter four verse twenty one and chapter twenty four verse twenty seven it was as natural for the jews with their allegorizing tendency to consider their actions and destiny as types of the messiah as to take their sayings for predictions in general the whole messianic era was expected to be full of signs and wonders the eyes of the blind should be opened the ears of the deaf should be unclosed the lame should leap and the tongue of the dumb praise god from isaiah chapter thirty five verse five and following chapter forty two verse seven and following compare with chapter thirty two verses three and four these merely figurative expressions soon came to be understood literally from matthew chapter eleven verse five and luke chapter seven verse twenty one and following and thus the idea of the messiah was continually filled up with new details even before the appearance of jesus thus many of the legends respecting him had not to be newly invented they already existed in the popular hope of the messiah having been mostly derived from various modifications from the old testament and had merely to be transferred to jesus and accommodated to his character and doctrines in no case could it be easier for the person who first added any new feature to the description of jesus to believe himself its genuineness since his argument would be such and such things must have happened to the messiah jesus was the messiah therefore such and such things happened to him truly it may be said that the middle term of this argument namely that jesus was the messiah would have failed in proof to his contemporaries all the more on account of the common expectation of miraculous events if that expectation had not been fulfilled by him but the following critique on the life of jesus does not divest it of all those features to which the character of miraculous has been appropriated and besides we must take into account the overwhelming impression which was made upon those around him by the personal character and discourse of jesus as long as he was living amongst them which did not permit them deliberately to scrutinize and compare him with their previous standard the belief in him as the messiah extended to wider circles only by slow degrees and even during his lifetime the people may have reported many wonderful stories of him compare matthew chapter fourteen verse two after his death however the belief in his resurrection however that belief may have arisen afforded a more than sufficient proof of his messiahship so that all the other miracles in his history need not be considered as the foundation of the faith in this but may rather be adduced as the consequence of it it is however by no means necessary to attribute this same freedom from all conscious intention of fiction to the authors of all those narratives in the old and new testament 
which must be considered as unhistorical. In every series of legends, especially if any patriotic or religious party interest is associated with them, as soon as they become the subject of free poetry or any other literary composition, some kind of fiction will be intentionally mixed up with them. The authors of the Homeric songs could not have believed that every particular which they related of their gods and heroes had really happened, and just as little could the writer of the Chronicles have been ignorant that in his deviation from the books of Samuel and of the kings, he was introducing many events of later occurrence into an earlier period. Or the author of the book of Daniel, that he was modeling his history upon that of Joseph, and accommodating prophecies to events already past. And exactly as little may this be said of all the unhistorical narratives of the Gospels, as, for example, of the first chapter of the third, and many parts of the fourth gospel. But a fiction, although not undesigned, may still be without evil design. It is true that the case is not the same with the supposed authors of many fictions in the Bible, as with poets properly so-called, since the latter write without any expectation that their poems will be received as history. But still, it is to be considered that in ancient times, and especially among the Hebrews, and yet more when this people was stirred up by religious excitement, the line of distinction between history and fiction, prose and poetry, was not drawn so clearly as with us. The only question that can arise here is whether to such fictions, the work of an individual, we can give the name of mythi. If we regard only their own intrinsic nature, the name is not appropriate. But it is so when these fictions, having met with faith, come to be received amongst the legends of a people or religious party, for this is always a proof that they were the fruit, not of any individual conception, but of an accordance with the sentiments of a multitude. A frequently raised objection remains, for the refutation of which the remarks above made, upon the date of the origin of many of the gospel mythi, are mainly important, the objection namely, that the space of about thirty years from the death of Jesus to the destruction of Jerusalem, during which the greater part of the narratives must have been formed, or even the interval extending to the beginning of the second century, the most distant period which can be allowed for the origin of even the latest of these gospel narratives, and for the written composition of our gospels, is much too short to admit of the rise of so rich a collection of mythi. But, as we have shown, the greater part of these mythi did not arise during that period, for their first foundation was laid in the legends of the Old Testament, before and after the Babylonian exile, and the transference of these legends with suitable modifications to the expected Messiah was made in the course of the centuries which elapsed between that exile and the time of Jesus. So that, for the period between the formation of the first Christian community and the writing of the Gospels, there remains to be effected only the transference of messianic legends, almost already formed, to Jesus, with some alterations to adapt them to Christian opinions, and to the individual character and circumstances of Jesus, only a very small proportion of mythi having to be formed entirely new. End of section 14